Welcome to the St Emlyn's podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm delighted to say that with me today I've got John Hell. He's a consultant in neurointensive care at the University Hospital of Southampton and was until recently the director of the Wessex Neurosciences Intensive Care Unit there. He's also the co-author of the excellent neurointensive care guidelines that the team have produced and are freely available on the internet and we've linked to in our blog post. John, welcome along. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. So we're going to tackle today a topic which I think most emergency doctors won't really be that familiar with, but one that I guess we come across after the trauma patients that we've seen have been admitted to the ITU. And this comes from a case that we both looked after recently, and I know that you presented at our major trauma meeting. So we'll just do a quick case presentation, and then I'll just let you loose with a couple of questions about it, if we can, because we're going to talk today about diffuse axonal injury. So, John, the sort of case we're thinking of, and this is a hypothetical case, it's a major trauma patient, let's say a 45-year-old cyclist. He's come off at speed and he suffers a severe head injury. He's seen by the pre-hospital team and intubated and ventilated, transferred up to us at the major trauma centre, and he goes off and has a trauma CT. His only injury is an isolated major head injury, but he's got no intracranial bleed, and he comes along to the neurointensive care for ongoing management. So that's the sort of patient we're thinking about, and we want to think specifically about diffuse axonal injury. Now, this is a bit of a mystery to me, so I wondered if we could start with some basics. You can just describe a bit more the neuroanatomy of what diffuse axonal injury is. The pathophysiology of diffuse axonal injury really is that of axonal shearing. The neuronal cells have got their cell bodies in the grey matter at the outside of the brain, and the axons form the white matter on the interior of the brain. And there is a difference in density between the cell bodies and the axons, the axons being myelinated sheaths. When the head is subject to an accelerating force, the brain will accelerate at different rates within the skull. And because the grey matter and white matter have different connections and different densities, they will move at different speeds, and this will cause shearing of those axons. Now, primarily, that initial injury, the primary brain injury, is just stretching of those axons, and it's not thought that they are definitely ruptured at that point. But that damage to them causes them to swell, and when they swell and start releasing mediators, that's when the axons actually start to break down. So a large part of diffuse axonal injury is the initial mechanical shearing force causing a release of biochemical mediators, which will then go on to cause further injury. Now, the secondary injury that really comes from that primary brain injury is due to the cerebral edema that will be caused by those mediators, and that will cause a, an increase in the intracranial pressure, but also a restriction of diffusion of uh, glucose and oxygen to the brain tissue. And so you will get a relative hypotension due to an increase in ICP and an inadequate cerebral perfusion pressure and a relative hypoxia to the uh, individual neurons from having this restricted diffusion. It sounds like this can happen with any head injury from even the most minor up through to the most severe. So are we seeing this in our patients who come to the emergency department with just a concussion type thing or does this have to be from part of a major trauma situation? I think that diffuse axonal injury is actually far more prevalent than was previously thought. And this was brought home to me when uh, my son was actually injured on the way back from playing basketball when somebody threw a basketball at the back of his head. Now, I 
couldn't quite understand. It was quite clear he hadn't lost consciousness, but he did go down and he hit his nose on his knee and he created a bloody mess. But he was not able to form any new real thoughts and he wasn't able to behave normally at college for the next 48 hours. So I think there is an element of diffuse axonal injury, even in relatively minor conditions of head injury. And that we know that in the severe and the moderately severe traumatic brain injuries, about 72% of the survivors have got a degree of diffuse axonal injury, although in about 50% of those it will be combined with both haematomas and contusions. So we've got this patient who's come into us, he's got no obvious injury that needs immediate surgical management, and he's down on the neuro-ITU, he's come to you. Can we predict the outcome from that sort of injury? What do we see on the imaging? How, how do we know what to do next? So on the initial imaging, we may see very, very little if you look very carefully and you know the history well, you can look for injury at the grey-white matter interface. And that's the most common place to find small particular hemorrhage, which will just about show up on a CT. It shows up much better on a repeat CT and even better on an MRI scan. So the initial thing that causes us to treat them is the suspicion from their mechanism of injury, their GCS and what's on the CT scan and then we repeat the CT scan after 6, 12 or 24 hours to see how things have progressed. And does initial GCS matter? So if the pre-hospital team come in and they say oh, this guy was combative at scene or he had a GCS that was reduced and it was he had a motor score of let's say 2 or 3, does that have any effect on the outcome or the degree of damage from diffuse axonal injury? Is there any relationship to those at all? So we know that in a population of such patients with a poor GCS initially, on average they will do worse. But on an individual patient basis, there is no possible way of saying what will happen to an individual. So we can only say that there will be either a disability that we cannot predict or the patient may die from their injury, and that's almost regardless of what they initially present with, although we know on average that the worst GCS presentations will have a worse outcome. But we can't write off patients with a low GCS at the beginning as those patients who are going to do badly. We just simply can't predict. We see large numbers of patients with a GCS of three at presentation who go on to make a very good recovery and actually get back to independent living. So we cannot say on the initial GCS, particularly if there's been any alcohol or drugs involved in uh, the initial trauma, what the outcome will be in that patient. Excellent. So you've got this chap, he's come down to the neuro-ITU, he's been stabilised in the ED, he's gone via scan, he's not been in hospital long. What's the first approach when you get them down to the unit? What's the, the cornerstone of care to look after these patients and prevent further brain injury and to improve their recovery? The first step when they come to the neurointensive care unit is to continue stabilising the patient and ensuring that we get everything as near normal as we can in the initial few hours after their injury. So the nice thing from the point of view of major trauma is that we can treat all major trauma in the same way. There is no reason to make a distinction between other major trauma and major trauma involving the central nervous system. Our aim will be complete resuscitation to normal parameters with normal blood pressure, normal PaCO2, normal PaO2, and the only thing that is different in uh, traumatic brain injury is we want to maintain adequate venous drainage from the head so it's ideal if they're tilted head up initially and that we ensure that there is nothing that's obstructing their venous, venous outflow from the head so there's nothing obstructing the internal jugular veins such as a tight-fitting cervical collar. 
the cornerstone really to the management of these patients initially is ensuring that they've got completely normal coagulation function. Hence, we want to reverse any warfarin as soon as possible as the diagnosis is made. We want to keep the patient warm and we want normal numbers of normally functioning platelets. Once we've got the patient stabilized in that situation and we are happy that they are adequately sedated and analgesed, we can at that stage then ask one of our technicians or a neurosurgeon to place an intracranial pressure monitor so that we can see what sort of pressure they will have inside their head. Now very often we can see on the initial scan what sort of pressure they are likely to have depending on their age. So there is more space in the head of patients as they get older and they are less likely to have an, a high ICP on their initial presentation. In the young, the ICP may go up sooner, but the one thing we know with diffuse axonal injury is that they will tend to swell over the ensuing 72 to 96 hours, and hence sometime in the first 12 to 24 hours, we will usually want to place an ICP monitor so that we can maintain adequate cerebral perfusion pressure as their ICP increases. So just to go back on that, are you really saying that any of these patients really you're going to have to give three or maybe four days of care to before you know how bad the injury is. Do you have to wait that degree of time in order to work out where the management's going, whether this is a case where the patient may have a good recovery or whether the, there's nothing else that you can do to help? Is it that long that you're going to take? It depends on the initial GCS as to whether it's going to always take that long. If the initial GCS is favourable but the patient was very agitated, we may just repeat a scan after 12 or 24 hours and see if anything has progressed and if there are any signs of actual contusions developing. Now very often this, the initial scan shows very little and the repeat scan shows a huge progression in these contusions and so it's very important that we don't assume that what's on the initial scan is actually the injury that is present. If there is very little progression of the injury and it's relatively good GCS on presentation we may decide to wean the patient and see what they're able to do sooner. But anybody who's got severe injury on their repeat CT scan, we know is likely to swell and they will need a longer period of sedation before we actually wake them up. Now, one of the things that I'm interested in, because I know that your view on this may differ a little bit to some of the others in the blogosphere and online community, we're just we're talking a bit before about intravenous fluids and what you might use as a maintenance fluid or to maintain the patient's hydration status when they're in the unit. You can just explain a little bit about your choice of IV fluid and why you've made that decision to use that in particular. The volume of the central nervous system is absolutely dependent on the osmolality of the fluid in the plasma. Hence, if we give fluids which do not have an adequate osmolality and we start to dilute plasma down, the fluid will tend to go across the blood-brain barrier and cause the brain to swell. Now, of the fluids that we would normally use as either resuscitation or maintenance fluids, we have a choice between fluids such as normal saline or Hartmann's. Within the bag, we're aware that normal saline has got an osmolality of 308 milliosmoles per kilogram. However, when this fluid reaches the plasma, it doesn't take over the plasma, it gets dissociated within it, and it gets associated with different molecules. And hence the effective osmolality of your bag of normal saline is actually only about 286 milliosmoles per kilogram within the plasma, which in view of a normal osmolality of 285 to 295 
is just about the lower limit of normal and hence it's a reasonable uh, fluid to use for infusion. However, if you were to use a fluid such as Hartmann's, this is effectively hypoosmolar in the body. A lot of the ions within it are going to be converted on uh, actual infusion into the body. So although in the bag you can add up the osmolality and get a number of 278, the effective osmolality of Hartmann's within the body is about 253, which is very hypoosmolar and hence will make the plasma dilute and will make fluid move across the blood-brain barrier and cause the brain to swell. So the only fluids that we would recommend for anybody with central nervous system injury in the acute phase are either normal saline or blood products. And that's based on the entirely on the osmolality because there's been a real move away from normal saline people will say well it's nothing there's nothing normal about it and people have been taking it away from recess rooms and moving right over to plasmolite or Hartmann's or those other solutions but you would say that in your unit normal saline for these patients and I guess we're talking about patients with isolated head injury or isolated CNS disturbance then what we call normal saline would be your intravenous fluid of choice. We have used normal saline as our intravenous maintenance fluid and our intravenous bolus fluid of choice for the last 12 years and although we have seen some brace chloride ions this is not something we worry about. All of our patients are monitored very intensively and we have never seen any of our patients come to harm from having a high chloride. One of the things that the chloride ions will do is it will create an effective acidosis. This is likely to improve oxygen delivery to the tissues and is not actually something that creates a problem. When it comes to coagulation, which is the other thing which people worry about when it comes to normal saline, we would never use any fluid that we felt would impair coagulation, and we have never seen any evidence in any of our patients that resuscitating and treating them with normal saline has created a problem with coagulation. I would say that the priority with a traumatic brain injury patient is as soon as they're resuscitated to start once they're hemodynamically stable, to adequately enterally feed them. And hence, although we do give normal saline, we are not giving vast volumes for weeks and months. We are just giving reasonable amounts at the beginning of their stay in intensive care and then relying on enteral feeding to provide them with all that they need thereafter. So as we think about what we can do in the emergency department and even in the pre-hospital environment, are there other things that we can think about, maybe perhaps with induction agents or the way in which we approach the patient in the early phases of resuscitation that can help improve outcome? There is feeling afoot that uh, the most important thing in traumatic brain injury is maintenance of CPP. And it's although it is an important aspect of what uh, is done, the most important thing in the initial resuscitation of a traumatically brain injured patient is to minimise their cerebral metabolic rate for oxygen. The best drug for minimising the cerebral metabolic rate for oxygen is thiopentone. We've known this for many years. It's the best drug to prevent seizures. It's the best drug to stop seizures. And it's the best way of minimising the cerebral metabolic rate and improving the balance between oxygen delivery and oxygen requirement. Now, obviously, if a patient is hemodynamically unstable and they have other injuries, then the very last thing that I would be recommending is that we should be using a drug which, if used inadvisedly, may cause hypotension. However, if the patient is hemodynamically stable and they have an isolated head injury, by far the best drug for induction is thiopentone. And in the patients that are not so severely injured, this will then allow us to wake them up very quickly after they've had their surgery if they require emergency evacuation 
of an acute exudural, for example. There is no reason why in the hemodynamically unstable patient, drugs such as ketamine should not be used for induction of anesthesia, but there is no great advantage in using ketamine in a patient that is already hemodynamically stable, and we do know that ketamine will increase the cerebral metabolic rate for oxygen and will decrease the seizure threshold. So it's a balance of risk and benefit, and it's a question for the individual physician on the patient in front of them to decide risk and benefit, which is the best drug to use. So just trying to make that as simple as possible, you would recommend that in a patient with isolated head injury who's hemodynamically normal and not hypotensive or bleeding, then thiopentone would be a good drug to choose. And in fact, that goes back to the classical RSI that I was taught when I did anesthesia. Uh, so a drug that most people doing airways should be familiar with. But if the patient is hemodynamically compromised, they've got bleeding, there's a worry about their hypotension, then ketamine is an agent that you wouldn't get too worried about. And all of that old literature that people have quoted about ketamine being bad for patients with head injury, that's not really something that we need to worry about in the acute phase anymore. I think we have to look at the balance of risk, and I think there is no reason at all why we should not use ketamine, which is a very good induction agent in the hemodynamically unstable patient. However, I am quite convinced that in the hemodynamically stable patient with an isolated head injury, if you want to do the best possible thing for them prior to their arrival on your intensive care, it is to minimise their cerebral metabolic rate for oxygen by inducing them with thiopentone and keeping them well and truly anaesthetised with an adequate dose of propofol and then supporting their blood pressure with adequate intravenous fluid of an appropriate osmolality. Excellent. So, John, we've come to um, round up a little bit there about diffuse axonal injury and we've talked a bit about the management of the severely head-injured patient, both in the pre-hospital environment, the emergency department and onwards into the neurointensive care unit. The last thing I just wanted to ask really is we have these patients and it all seems hopeless sometimes. They present with a GCS of four, they've been hit at speed by a car, the helmet's mullered and mushed up and everybody's feeling a bit negative. Is there any way that we can predict again how these patients will do? Are there good prognostic factors or bad prognostic factors or is it really just down to good care and then time and being admitted to a unit like yours where ongoing management can be assessed further. There is a perception, and there has long been held to be a perception, that diffuse axonal injury is associated with a very poor outcome. And in fact, when I first started in neuroanesthesia, the outcomes were very poor because these patients did not have a neurosurgical lesion that could be operated upon, and hence were not admitted to neurointensive care units. They were kept in their local district general hospital where the perception was that since the neurosurgeons weren't interested in them, they must do badly, and as you would inevitably expect, they therefore did badly. Now that we're aggressively monitoring and managing these patients on neurointensive care, their outcomes can be extraordinary, and you can never predict on an initial scan or even a repeat scan exactly how your patient will do. We know that any patient with a moderate or severe traumatic brain injury will either have one of two outcomes. They may die from that injury or they may survive with a disability. Now it's impossible to predict either the level or the nature of that disability and hence our priority is to save every single neuron that we can and maintain every single neuron within the central nervous system that we can by minimising any secondary brain injury. And if we do that, we know that very occasionally these patients can do extraordinarily well. 
We've seen patients who've been studying previously, who've gone back to their previous studies. We've seen patients who've gone back to their work, back to their families, and back to independent living. Our aim on neurointensive care is to get people back to independence rather than just to keep them alive. Now, there are things that we do know with diffuse axonal injury which are associated with a worse outcome. So we're aware that young patients have got more brain cells than the elderly and hence will tend to do better, except that children that have not finished their education do not do as well as adults that have. And the higher level of education that the adults have achieved the better chance of an outcome they've got. And we refer to this as connectivity. So the more synapses that have been formed due to education and experience up to a point of early adulthood, the better the outcome will be for that patient if they suffer a diffuse axonal injury because there'll be more routes for the, for the impulses to pass down and actually take over function. There'll be more plasticity within the brain cells that are there. But we're also aware that patients with a poor initial GCS will on average do worse, although occasionally our patients with bad GCSs actually do surprisingly well. However, the real worry for us is if these patients start to develop complications after their initial management and they go on to develop hydrocephalus or infection within the central nervous system, these patients can go on to actually do extraordinarily badly and they are a very difficult patient group to manage. But the, my basic rule with any patient that comes in is you cannot predict in an individual patient exactly how they will do. And so we should give every single patient the opportunity to make the best possible recovery that they can do. And many of them will recover to independence and a good quality of life. So, John, we're sitting here in a slight ivory tower, and if a patient comes to us here, it's no problem. I just give you a call, and you're in the same building, and uh, you'll be very helpful, and the patient will come to you. What does the doctor in the district general hospital do, uh, say in our area here around Southampton, when they receive a patient with severe head injury? There's no bleed on the CT scan. They've given the neurosurgeon a call, and the neurosurgeon says, oh, well, there's nothing for us to do operatively. But based on everything we've talked about, really that patient should be considered for a place on a neurointensive care unit. Is this something that should happen at a unit like yours or could it happen at a district general hospital's intensive care unit? Are these phone calls that people should be making to their local tertiary centre? We are always happy to receive phone calls from our referring district general hospitals and I do receive phone calls at all times of the day and night from my intensive care colleagues when they have such patients admitted. The basic rule is that any patient who suffered a significant traumatic brain injury, even if there is very little on their initial scan, if their initial GCS was poor, they will benefit from immediate intubation and ventilation and management to normal parameters. And that's normal oxygenation, normal carbon dioxide, not low carbon dioxide, but normal carbon dioxide, normal blood pressure, and normal osmolality with normal temperature and absolutely normal clotting. Any patient who is anticoagulated must have that anticoagulation reversed immediately and get back to normal coagulation. Anybody on antiplatelet agents must have platelet transfusions if they are still bleeding. The aim of our management initially is just to get everything to normal and at the same time if we can manage a little bit of head up position with nothing to obstruct the venous outflow from the brain, 
we will be doing the maximum that we can for that patient until they can actually be admitted to an intensive care unit and monitored further. John, that's excellent. Thank you so much for that. I think we've covered so many different things there, not just about diffuse axonal injury, but some of those questions that I'm sure people would have. And actually, I'm quite relieved now that I had a university education. So bearing in mind, if I ever get a bump on the head, I've got more chance of recovering from my diffuse axonal injury. It's been really great to have you along. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy and uh, perhaps we'll get you onto the podcast again another time to talk about something else to do with neurointensive care and our trauma patients. But thank you again. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you.